In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Raw Deal. I begin in memory of Martin Luther King, though the news I bring is rather grim. He had a magnificent history as a Baptist minister and social activist who led the civil rights movement in the United States from the mid-1950s until his death by assassination in 1968. He was born in 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia, a Baptist minister, civil rights activist, as I've said, had a seismic impact on race relations in the United States beginning in the mid-1950s. Among his many efforts, Uh, King headed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Through his activism and inspirational speeches, he played a pivotal role in ending the legal segregation of African-American citizens in the United States, as well as the creation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964 and was a most worthy recipient, unlike our past president, who completely tarnished the meaning of the Nobel Prize by launching increasing wars of aggression, as many as 14 in Africa alone during his term. That was a gross embarrassment to the Nobel Committee, where Barack Hussein Obama proved to be a totally unworthy recipient. The case of Martin Luther King Jr., however, is quite the opposite. And he paid for his activism and contributions in a rather serious fashion. I've done uh, two interviews with Oli Domegaard on the assassination of Martin Luther King. You can find them on The Real Deal. Oli Domegaard on the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And The Real Deal, Oli Domegaard on the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Part 2. The world-class expert on assassins and assassinations, Oli Domegaard, applies his analytical skills and research abilities to dissecting the death of one of America's greatest champions, Martin Luther King Jr. Students of U.S. history are going to be stunned and appalled to learn of the role of Jesse Jackson in setting him up for the hit and that he did not die on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, but was smothered to death at St. George's Hospital by a racist bigot physician. I mean, this is such disturbing stuff. William Pepper, who is the brilliant uh, defense attorney for James Earl Ray, who, like Lee Harvey Oswald in relation to JLK, was a patsy 
in relation to MLK, just as Sirhan Sirhan was yet another patsy in relation to the death of RFK, set up Martin by making a phone call suggesting that it was inappropriate that Martin should be staying in a a white-owned hotel in downtown Memphis, which happened to be very secure, leading to his move to the Lorraine Hotel, Motel, which was not. Jesse Jackson played that role. I mean, it's embarrassing. Uh, Details of this case are shocking. Uh, I would wager that the overwhelming majority of you have never heard this before. William Pepper did the basic research. Ollie Damagard uh, uh, delivered it during our two interviews. You don't want to miss on the real deal. Uh, Jesse appears to have been playing as the role of an FBI informant and set him up. The shot was not fired by James Earl Ray, but in the bushes uh, in front of the motel where the Dallas uh, police had the whole area cut down so it would no longer be possible to identify the location. I have no doubt that J. Edgar Hoover played a role here. He had a visceral hatred for Martin Luther King, who wasn't a saint, by the way. Uh, He had many affairs with white women, for example. And Edgar, who had his rooms bugged, would record these encounters and send them to Coretta Scott King, Martin's wife. That was the caliber of... Edgar, who, alas, did not perform heroic acts on behalf of the American people in the fight for social justice of Martin Luther King. Jack Kennedy, as is widely known, had a weakness for women, too. He also was a notorious womanizer and had many affairs, though he does not appear to have been a great lover. Angie Dickinson, for example, observed that Her affair with uh, uh, John F. Kennedy was the greatest 15 seconds of her life. Now, James Earl Ray was a very interesting guy in the sense that he made a very elaborate escape, wound up being arrested in London on the same day as the funeral service was held for Bobby Kennedy. Bobby, of course, was shot uh, in the, the Ambassador Hotel uh, the, the evening he won the, the Democratic primary in California, he was led by a trusted aide, whom I believe to have been Frank Mankiewicz, uh, into the pantry when his original exit was supposed to have been through the Grand Ballroom. And there, of course, he was shot, but not by Sirhan Sirhan, who was uh, 15 feet in front of Bobby and who emptied his his uh, eight-shot revolver, but none of those rounds hit Bobby. No, he was shot instead by his security guard holding his left arm by the name of Thane Eugene Caesar, using a weapon of the same make and caliber as Sirhan's, initially right behind the right ear from a distance of one and a half inches. And then as Bobby was falling, he fired at him three more times, two of which entered his body beneath the armpit, one of which simply passed through his clothing. When Thomas Noguchi, who was a world 
recognized medical examiner conducted the autopsy report on Bobby and reflected the causes of death, as I've just described here, which were in stunning conflict with the Los Angeles Police Department account. Noguchi, who ought to have been taken as the basis for repudiating the LAPD report, was instead fired. This is the kind of justice we have in the United States. I have published a piece outing the CIA at the ambassador where multiple witnesses identified three officials of the agency, George Joannidis, who was in charge of PSYOPs for the CIA during the time of both the assassination of JFK and of Bobby, uh, Gordon Campbell, uh, a a lesser figure, but one whom Bradley Ayers, whom I knew personally, uh, an Army captain who was given a special assignment to the CIA at JM Wave, Uh, down in Miami, the only CIA station ever officially allowed on U.S. soil, identified Gordon Campbell, and and, uh, uh, also uh, David Sanchez Morales was there. Uh, uh, Bradley identified two or three, Wayne Smith, two or three others, but multiple others uh, confirmed it. Uh, If you want to see a nice study in how there are attempts to suppress information, check out the article. You can find it at jamesfetzer.blogspot.com. Outing the CIA at the Ambassador, again, is the title. And I just have to observe that in this relatively brief five-year span between 1963 we had the, the, the loss of the leading figures of the progressive movement in the United States, JFK, uh, MLK, RFK. And I don't want to overlook, too, the assassination of Malcolm X, who was a, quite a fascinating guy in his own right. So there you have some of the down and dirty about uh, aspects of American history. Part of what I am reporting to you, I'm sure you'll find rather stunning, even breathtaking. Paul Craig Roberts, whom I regard as our nation's leading public intellectual, has reported another step toward Armageddon. The U.S. military security complex has taken another step toward Armageddon. The Pentagon has prepared a nuclear posture review that gives the okay to the development of smaller usable nuclear weapons and permits their use in response to a non-nuclear attack. As Reagan and Gorbachev understood, but the warmongers who have taken over America do not, there are far too many nuclear weapons already. Some scientists have concluded that even the use of 10% of either the U.S. or Russian arsenal would suffice to destroy life on Earth. 10%. It is reckless and irresponsible for Washington to make such a decision in the wake of years of aggressive actions taken against Russia. The Clinton criminal regime broke Washington's promise that NATO would not move one inch to the east. This, by the way, was negotiated by Lee Wontas, a special ambassador designated by Ronald Reagan, to negotiate with Mikhail Gorbachev, during which we made the solemn promise, which has a status of a treaty, which has the same status as the Constitution of the United States, if you check it that the United States would not encroach on the Eastern Bloc countries that now would become sovereign states with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. 
that we would not seek to make them NATO countries, that we would not seek to militarize them along the border of Russia, all of which solemn vows we have violated again and again and again. What this means is the word of the United States is not trustworthy, that the United States is willing to abandon even the most solemn obligations uh, uh, in its entire history, of which this counts as as a specific example of the highest importance. Washington cannot be trusted by any other nation. If we would betray the Soviet Union in negotiating its own dissolution, we would betray anyone for any reason that the administration then in office regards as suitable and appropriate, just as Donald Trump is now seeking to undermine the Iran deal, even though we know that Iran is a peaceful country, hasn't attacked, launched a war of aggression against any other state since 1775. And yet Donald Trump, who entered into that solemn agreement with the the P5 nations uh, and Iran, is now seeking to undermine it. He's made some absurd arguments. I'll return to this issue because it looks as though there's an effort to fabricate a war with Iran. Grotesque. The George W. Bush criminal regime pulled out of the ABM Treaty and change U.S. war doctrine to elevate the use of nuclear weapons from retaliation to first strike. The Obama criminal regime launched a frontal propaganda attack on Russia with crazed Hillary's denunciation of of President Putin as the new Hitler. In an effort to evict Russia from its naval base in Crimea, the criminal Obama regime overthrew the Ukrainian government during the Sochi Olympics and installed a Washington puppet. U.S. missile bases have been established on Russia's border and NATO conducts war games against Russia on those very frontiers. This is a disgraceful record. You're getting it straight from Paul Craig Roberts. U.S. aims to disrupt Russia's internal affairs with sanctions before the elections, Deputy Foreign Minister. A new round of sanctions likely to be imposed on Moscow by Russia will be an obvious attempt to disrupt Russian internal affairs ahead of the presidential elections, Russia's deputy foreign minister has said. Get the irony here. There was no Russian hacking. The whole Russian hacking meme was made up by Robbie Mook and John Podesta within 24 hours of Hillary's concession speech in order to divert attention from the incompetent campaign they had run in order to distract from the contents of the WikiLeaks revelations, which led to Pizzagate, where uh, John Podesta has been pedophile-in-chief, and to obfuscate that Hillary had had extensive negotiations with Russia as Secretary of State, which led to the transfer of 20% of American uranium reserves to Russia through a Canadian company, Uranium One, with the approval and blessings of Barack Hussein Obama. Stop and think about it. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were given the electric chair for sharing electric uh, atomic secrets with the Soviet Union. What fate do Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama deserve for transferring 20% of American uranium to Russia? That's a very serious question. 
but you're hearing practically none of it from the mainstream press, which is still talking about the non-existent Russian hacking business. We see this as yet another attempt to influence our internal affairs, especially ahead of the presidential election. Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rabakov told TASS on Saturday, the sanctions are expected to follow the presentation of two Trump administration reports to Congress at the end of January. One of these reports will apparently include a list of individuals who might be targeted with the American sanctions, and the other, as we believe, will encompass the effectiveness of the sanctions already in place. The reports are the latest stamp in the implementation of the Countering American Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, signed by U.S. President Donald Trump last August. Sanctions imposed at that time targeted a range of entities and individuals, namely Russian weapon manufacturers, banks, and the energy sector, as well as those the U.S. accuses of meddling with the 2016 election, which didn't happen, and we know it didn't happen from as prominent figures and experts in this area as, as Ray McGovern and Bill Benny, members of the Veteran Intelligent Professionals for Sanity, who studied the, the, the records that were uh, downloaded and discovered they had to have come directly from the server because the time in which it took place was much too fast for distant hacking and done in the Eastern time zone. So it was all rubbish. The reports have already been preceded by a document titled Putin's Asymmetrical Assault on Democracy in Russia and Europe, Implications for U.S. National Security, which was published on Wednesday. Uh, This is in relation to January 13th, so we're talking about uh, last Wednesday. The tone of the report, the report has reiterated virtually all the rumors and conspiracy theories about alleged Kremlin activities, citing a number of media outlets and individuals well known for their strong anti-Russian bias as sources. Russia, however, is already preparing its response to the expected sanctions although it's unclear whether it would be a mirror tip for tat or any other response, the final decision is to be taken by the Russian president in due time. Using the U.S. language, I like to say we have all the options on the table. We seek the most effective means to react to the unfolding events without harming our own interests and without shutting down the possibility for gradual normalization of Russia-U.S. relations. Russian journalists, by the way, have now blown the lid off of the continuing support of terrorism by the United States through a network in Syria. Two Russian Syria-embedded journalists have put together a damning first-hand report on the true purpose of the secrecy-laden U.S. military mission at Aptanuk, southern Syria. The Pentagon was forced to go into full public relations mode last month amid fresh allegations by the Russian general staff that U.S. instructors were providing training assistance for some 350-X-ISIS militants at the U.S. Army's Al-Tamp garrison on the southern Syrian province of Horns. Chief of Staff General Valery Gerasimov accused Washington of intending to use the militants to create a so-called new Syrian army a military formation aimed at further destabilizing the war-torn country after Daesh had been defeated. Of course, that's exactly what we're doing. Here we have a brand new report. Syrian army vows to end U.S. presence in Syria. Foreign minister says U.S. violating Syrian sovereignty January 15th. 
The Syrian foreign ministry has responded negatively to the U.S. pledge to create a new border force in southern northern Syria of what turned out to be as many as 30,000 U.S.-backed fighters, saying not only are they violating Syrian sovereignty, but the Syrian army's goal must be to end the U.S. presence in the country outright. Syria has long opposed the U.S. military presence in the country, which was deployed without Syrian permission, and which Pentagon officials say will last long after the outright defeat of ISIS. Whether the Syrians can do anything about it is another matter. The U.S. presence in Syria remains substantial, backed by a large, heavily armed Kurdish force. Despite the U.S. deployment being plainly illegal, there's no practical way to remove them by force, to which I say we shall see. There's ongoing developments here that are going to be very, very serious and consequential for American forces deployed in the Middle East, I predict. We knew who they are, Putin claims. State provocateur behind terrorist drones in Syria. Got this. Russia's President Vladimir Putin slammed those behind the massive drone attack on Russia's two Syrian bases, which took place on January 6th, saying in front of a large Russian media conference Thursday, there were some provocations, but they were not Turks. We knew who they are who paid for this provocation and what the actual sum was. Earlier this week, we reported that Russian military thwarted a highly coordinated attack on the Kuminamin Air Base of the Russian naval facility in the city of Taurus, intercepting 13 heavily armed unmanned aerial vehicles launched by terrorists. And underreported in international media is also a prior New Year's Eve attack. Though both attacks would appear to be merely the work of Islamist rebel factions, multiple extraordinary factors led the Russian Ministry of Defense to immediately state the perpetrators must have had outside state sponsorship. First, there was strange coincidences surrounding the terrorist attack, including a U.S. spy plane spotted in the area, a Navy Boeing P-8 Poseidon reconnaissance aircraft on patrol between the Kamenamen Air Base and terrorist naval base in Syria during the attack. Second, the air base lies deep within Syrian regime territory in what is among the most secure areas in all of Syria which also underscores the need for advanced satellite and navigational coordination from a state actor. Uh, uh, Third, the Russian military in its examination of the recovered drones find high-tech components well beyond what initially appeared to be rebel-made improvised devices manufactured locally. Putin went so far as to say that drones and explosives were purposely made to appear primitive and homemade in order to conceal the advanced technology with which they were outfitted. Russia is yet to reveal the identity of those responsible, but has strongly hinted at the United States or a regional ally, which elicited a Pentagon response this week with a spokesperson saying the suggestion is without any basis in fact and is utterly irresponsible. The UK Daily Mail featured detailed Russian defense photographs of the recovered drones, which were noted to be immune to jamming technology. More to come on this important story. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman, for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history. 
laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. The UK Daily Mail featured a detailed Russian defense photographs of the recovered drones, which were noted to be immune to jamming technology, and summarized the advanced capabilities as followed. Jam-resistant terrorist drones, they carried sophisticated software and precision-guided weaponry. The explosives they carried were stuffed with ball bearings. Looking at the photographs, you can see they were made up to look as though they were homemade, but with those sophisticated components, of course, that's a subterfuge. Now we have a very startling report from Glenn Kennedy related to this attack. According to this report on 10 January, the Minister of Defense released a shocking report revealing that a series of combat UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, attacks on Russian bases in Syria were in fact de facto training missions preparing for an assassination attempt upon President Trump. In seeking to determine why this U.S. Navy P-8 Poseidon reconnaissance aircraft was directing these 13 combat UAVs, UAVs against Russian military bases in Syria, MOD intelligence analysts became gravely alarmed upon their discovering that this particular aircraft had begun and ended its mission at Joint Base Andrews. That would be Andrews Air Force Base outside of Washington, D.C., and that during its entire flight, its only communications were with the U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI. Critical to note about the U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence is that just two days prior to these 13 combat UAVs commencing their attacks against Russian military bases on Syria on January 6th, the Foreign Intelligence Service on January 4th reminded, warned that the ONI was attempting to destroy President Donald Trump using the same methods of attack they had used against President Richard Nixon. But obviously, this is of a rather different character. Far from Steve Bannon having lost his mind, he is in fact acting true to his U.S. Navy intelligence training and who without a doubt was responsible for the 25th December cryptic U.S. Navy Julian Assange warning tweet, and whose only historical companion is his fellow U.S. Naval Intelligence comrade Bob Woodward, who, like Bannon, worked in the White House, Woodward, between 1969 and 70, and was privy to all of the president's secrets, and after the leaving the White House, went to the Washington Post, where he destroyed then-President Richard Nixon, like Bannon has done by going to Breitbart News, where he too is attempting to destroy President Trump in the same way. Frankly, I'm not quite convinced of that, but it continues. The difference being that President Trump was able to have Steve Bannon fired from Breitbart, unlike Nixon was able to do with Bob Woodward. Well, the troubling part is the role of the Office of Naval Intelligence, and it's very, very serious if, in fact, they were trying to to develop a coordinated drone attack against Trump. Uh, So I issue this as a warning 
I'm not able to verify it, but it's very, very troubling. I take the report that it was the drone attacks in in Syria were coordinated by the Office of Naval Intelligence. I think we can take that to the bank. Now we've got a development in the Middle East, and this is dated January 15th. U.S. creates Kurdish terrorist border force in Syria to define the borders of Kurdistan. For those who hope Trump would bring a more sensible approach to the Western-induced Syrian crisis, it's almost for certain those hopes have been officially dashed with the revelation of the Trump administration's new policy regarding the SDF, Kurds, a new border force, and the logical uh, partitioning plan that is obviously moving forward. And this is going to take big chunks of Iraq, uh, Syria, part of Turkey, into Iran if it were to be realized, this Kurdish-inhabited area that appears to be the prototype for the new Kurdistan. The coalition has stated that training's already underway, which has prompted a strong report from Turkey. As ABC Australia reports, Turkish Deputy Prime Minister Bekir Mozdag said the U.S. was playing with fire by setting a force that would include Kurdish uh, militia. Turkish President Yatip Erdogan's spokesman, Ibrahim Kalin, said Washington is taking worrying steps to legitimize this organization, YP. G and make it lasting in the region. It's absolutely not possible for this to be accepted, he said, adding that Turkey will continue its fight against any terrorist organization, regardless of its name and shape within and outside its border. Support for the SDF, that's a Syrian defense force, has put enormous strain on ties with NATO ally Turkey, which views YPG as an extension of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or KPP, a group that's waged a three-decade insurgency in Turkey and is considered a terrorist group by the European Union, Turkey, and even the United States. Uh, plans for redrawing the Middle East. This goes back now. I'm re- re- reporting a story from as long ago as 2006. That seems to be the background, the historical background for what's going on here. Plans for redrawing the Middle East, a project for a new Middle East which was among the most popular global research articles in 2017 when it was republished then. Uh, Hegemony is as old as mankind, Zbigniew Brzezinski, former U.S. National Security Advice. The term New Middle East was introduced to the world in June 2006 in Tel Aviv, appropriate, by then U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice who is credited by the Western meaning for courting the term in replacement of the older, more imposing term, the greater Middle East. This shift in foreign policy phraseology coincided with the inauguration of the uh, the Baku Tibisai-Sainhan oil terminal on the eastern Mediterranean. The term and conceptualization of the new Middle East was subsequently heralded by the U.S. Secretary of State and Israeli Prime Minister. At the height of the Anglo-American-sponsored Israeli siege of Lebanon, this is very, very troubling stuff. And we have a map that was drawn up uh, by a, 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 a Lieutenant Colonel, as I recall, by the name of Peters, that, that shows the new Kurdistan taking some of the most oil-rich regions of the countries I originally identified: parts of Iraq, parts of Syria, parts of Turkey, parts of Iran. 
I do not believe this will be allowed to go to pass. Turkey plans assault on Kurdish enclave in Syria. President Erdogan urges U.S. to support operation against Afrin enclave, which is intended to purge terror from border. Turkish, Turkey's president has said the country will launch a military assault on a Kurdish enclave in northern Syria in the coming days and urge the U.S. to support its efforts. Recep Tayyip Erdogan said the operation against the Afrin enclave aimed to purge terror from his country's surge border. Afrin is controlled by a Syrian Kurdish militia known as the YPG. Turkey considers the YPD to be a terror group linked to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, KPP, as I previously observed. I think that making this declaration was premature, uh, and that's going to create a tremendous backlash. Remember, the Russians are an important presence in Syria. They're going to have to reaffirm their presence there. Iran's been making an important contribution, all perfectly in accordance with international law at the request of the democratically elected Syrian president, Bashir al-Assad. Turkey's not going to be happy about this. Uh, uh, Iraq is not going to be happy about this. I foresee that the Kurds are may be vulnerable to being crushed by a massive assault to prevent the emergence of this new Middle East. If you want further indications, however, that Trump's Foreign policy is not America first, but Israel first. He's now cutting millions in U.S. humanitarian aid funding for the Palestinian Refugee Agency. Uh, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas has described Donald Trump's Middle East peace efforts as the slap of the century. He's condemned it in no uncertain terms. Speaking at the opening of a PLA conference, PLO conference in in. Uh, uh, Ramallah on Sunday, Abbas once again disqualified the U.S. as potential peace mediator with Israel after Trump's recent recognition of Jerusalem as the Israeli capital and his threat to cut aid to the Palestinian Authority. Addressing delegates, he declared, he, Trump, said in a tweet, we won't give money to the Palestinians because they reject negotiation. Shame on you, Trump. When did we reject negotiations? Where the Donald appears to be making this up. Abbas has sharply criticized Trump, saying the Palestinian Authority will never recognize now the U.S.'s decision to, re- to recognize, will never accept the U.S. president's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Politically, Jerusalem is our capital. In our religion, it is our capital. Geographically, it is our capital, said Abbas. But it was removed from the map with a tweet from Trump. Now we say no to Trump. We won't accept his plan. We say the deal of the century is the slap of the century. The Palestinian leader also said Israel had ended the Oslo peace accords of the 1990s with its actions and called the U.S. ambassador, U.S. ambassadors, the U.N. and Israel, Nikki Haley and David Friedman, a disgrace. I agree 100% with that. Israeli leaders, predictably, slammed the Palestinian president for a fiery invective-filled speech against President Donald Trump. Uh, Israeli Defense Minister uh, uh, Lieberman said Abbas has lost his senses and given up on the prospect of peace negotiation in favor of open confrontation with both Israel and the United States. Uh, uh, this is just ridiculous, but totally expected from Israel. Le- the, uh, Lieberman says, this is another from an Israeli uh, newspaper, 
defense minister says Israel plans to continue security coordination with the PA, noting if they stop it, it would be their decision. He also discusses Palestinian intransigence. Their Palestinians have always found a reason why not. Abbas doesn't want an agreement with Israel. This is about as nonsensical as it gets. You know, if someone has lost their senses, I dare say it's not the Palestinians who have lost their senses, but but Donald Trump, by going forward with a plan to benefit Israel, which further conforms what we learned from fire and fury. Here's a report about it. Trump's foreign policy, not America first, but Israel first. What Michael Trump's fire and fury says about Trump's collusion with Israel, where I've read three quarters of the book now, some 265 pages out of around 327. Since Donald Trump, this is about by Ali Abumina discussing the book. Uh, Well, I've in fact already reported on it before. So I just remind you that there's reinforcement here. And remember, we have uh, uh, Steve Bannon even talking about, quoted in the book, that that uh, detailing which details Trump's first year in the White House, quoting former Chief Strategist Bannon as saying regarding Trump's peace plan, let Jordan take the West Bank, let Egypt take Gaza, let them deal with it or sink trying. Trump also reportedly told multiple people son-in-law Kushner was qualified to handle Israeli-Palestinian peace talks because the Kushners know all the crooks in Israel. So he's going to further partition Israel. Look at the map. If you look at the shrinking region controlled by Palestinians since 1948, it's just staggering. Just look at a map. There are many available that show about 90% of the area originally occupied by the Palestinians has been subsumed by the Israelis. And now we get a further disturbing report just from 13 January. Trump vows to renew all-out economic war on Iran. President Donald Trump has publicly vowed to relaunch all-out economic warfare against Iran by no later than mid-May, unless the European powers join Washington in unilaterally rewriting the civil nuclear agreement between Tehran and the world's great powers. Trump's incendiary pledge was a centerpiece of a bellicose anti-Iran statement issued Friday. In it, the U.S. president announced he was waiving for a further four months sanctions targeting Iran's oil exports and freezing the country out of the world banking system. Washington suspended these measures as part of the nuclear deal. However, Trump insisted he'll issue no further waivers until the agreement is rewritten. Frankly, this is so irresponsible that it makes me almost regret my vote for Donald Trump because I could never have voted for the the criminal monster Hillary Clinton who's been responsible for millions of deaths in the Middle East. At least at the time, Trump was declaring perfectly rationally, perfectly sanely that we'd squandered four to five trillion dollars in the Middle East for wars that had not benefited the United States at all. And of course, that was a consequence of 9-11 which was conducted by the CIA, the neocons, and the Department of Defense, most of whom were dual U.S.-Israeli citizens and the Mossad, to set up a circumstance under which the United States could be drawn into wars in the Middle East to take out the modern Arab states that serve as a, had served to that point in time as a counterbalance to Israel's domination of the entire region. In other words, this was all an Israeli op. I have a book about it. You can check it out at Moonrock Books. 
America nuked on 9-11, compliments of the CIA, the neocons, and the DOT, and, and the Mossad. I mean, the consequences have been tragic. As it is, other more limited U.S. sanctions and Washington's repeated threats to scuttle the nuclear deal and roll back Iranian influence in the Middle East continue to roil the Iranian economy, with European businesses in particular wary of committing to substantial investment. I frankly believe this is all going to draw together China, Iran, and Russia in a, a more compact international economic system that forgoes the United States. I've already reported on the BRICS system and that Russia is developing its own SWIFT system. These are very important consequences that are going to make the United States an increasingly marginal player in the Middle East and indeed around the world. According to Trump officials, Washington has no plans for talks with Iran or for that matter with the non-European signatories to the Iran nuclear deal, Russia and China. Rather, Washington intends to negotiate with the Europeans about endorsing Trump's demands with a view to a subsequent joint U.S.-EU ultimatum to Tehran to accept them or face the reimposition of economic sanctions. But frankly, the actions of the United States have become so irrational and unstable, I don't believe Europe is going to continue to look to the United States, but is going to be forced to draw closer to Russia and to China and to Iran as a consequence of this this misconceived and and completely uh, incompetent foreign policy that has been my most serious source of concern with with Donald Trump since he became president of the United States. Now, we have this very peculiar false alarm sent out to Hawaii. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Saturday, January 13th. Turned out to be a false alarm. Now, this is very, very peculiar. Uh, blamed on an employee and pushed the wrong button. Now, I have had a conversation about this with an expert in this area who used to be the Navy's top troubleshooter for electronic uh, weaponry. And he assured me this is impossible. It cannot have happened the way it is claimed. My uh, profound suspicion is that it was intended to change the topic. Trump had been attributed some very inadvisable uh, language in describing other countries as, shall we say, latrines, uh, which had created a, a firestorm of hostile news. When this event took place, uh, uh, this uh, report of a missile attack, it changed the conversation completely. And I, I'm willing to say it was an instance of, of fake news. The report was obviously false. When I first heard about it, I thought it was simply absurd because if you look at the world situation internationally, uh, such a missile would have to be coming from North Korea. But we've spent all those trillions of dollars over all these years developing very sophisticated defense systems, including uh, 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 lasers mounted on satellites that can take out North Korean missiles as they sit on the launching pad. And if they ever did get in the air, we can take them out. So this idea of a missile about to hit Hawaii seemed to me preposterous from the beginning. And the more I looked at it, the more it appeared to me a deliberate contrivance to change the subject which it did rather successfully. Now we have another interesting case when it comes to fake news, France. The chief uh, executive of RT France has attended an interview with the Associated Press in Paris on 
Tuesday, January 9th, uh, 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 the F- Russia state broadcaster RT, formerly known as Russia Today, already broadcasts in English, Spanish, and Arabic, and has launched a French-language channel on December 18th. French President Emmanuel Macron's plan for a law against false information around election campaigns is drawing criticism from media advocates, tech experts, and others. They say it's impossible to enforce and smacks of methods used by authoritarians, not Democrats. One of my friends has observed, how are you going to distinguish between satire, for example, or allegories, or parodies, for example, which aren't intended to be taken as literally true? Who ultimately is going to decide the difference between what what news is true and what news is false? Does uh, government claim to have privileged access to truth? That is what they would have us believe, but we've seen here in the United States again and again and again, Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, JFK, 9-11, Charlottesville, Las Vegas. The government is issuing the fake news, not, not the alternative media. In a New York speech to journalists, he, Macron, says he's ordering a new legal arsenal that would oblige news sites to reveal who owns them and where their money comes from. It would cap the money allowed for content seen as aimed at swaying an election and allow emergency legal action to block websites. The French broadcast regulator's power would expand to allow it to suspend media seen as trying to destabilize a vote, notably those controlled or influenced by foreign powers. I just mentioned there were also fake claims in France about Russian meddling in their election that I dismissed as absurd on their face. And, of course, they turned out to be non-existent, just as the fake attacks here. But notice that hasn't inhibited uh, uh, Facebook or, or Google or YouTube for imposing sanctions if they don't like what you're publishing. I mean, the only way to go is to have unrestricted free speech, unrestricted competition for ideas, unrestricted publication and exchange of opinions. This idea of censoring uh, uh, opinions smacks of tyranny. It's a, and, and the idea that they're doing this in France is lamentable. And it's taking place. The, the only long-term solution for the fake news problem, said a spokesman for RT, is a more sophisticated public. And I agree. When the public has the opportunity to sort things out, they have, have the opportunity to figure out what is true and what is false. The idea of being paternalistic by taking the role of determining what you're allowed to hear and what you're allowed to see is outrageous. Sophisticated manipulators of facts will always find a way around whatever regulations are in place such as creating a front company to sponsor a website or writing something that's misleading and inflammatory that is factually true. Uh, it, it, it goes on here, but very, very troubling, where I've had the problem of someone actually infiltrating my blog and taking down images about which I will speak, demonstrating that the children at Sandy Hook were made out out of photographs of older children when they were younger. In other words, the children at Sandy Hook were fictions. None of them died. They're all alive and well and much older, approximately 10 years older than you would suppose they were, all things considered, because that's what they did, how they faked it. 
So I'm doing what I can to attain a higher degree of security. But I'm also finding YouTube videos in which I lay out facts about Sandy Hook or Las Vegas or uh, one or another are being constrained and restricted. This is not the America of my youth. This is not the America we should aspire to be. This is a tyrannical society that's gravitating in the direction of a Stalinist Soviet Union. It's despicable, it's disgusting, and it's what we have to contend with today and for the foreseeable future. And we're going to have to find methods of repudiating it and working around, such as uploading our videos to BitChute or to Schemit, which are alternatives that will not take down your video. I'm moving there with many of my videos now. I encourage others to consider that. Remember, you can, you can find videos by their title. You don't have to have a URL. You don't have to have a specific fixed code, but generally you can find videos based upon their titles. So when I mention titles, keep that in mind. Now we have the current development related to all the phony Russian hacking memes of Glenn Simpson, co-founder of the research firm Fusion GPS, who spoke to a House Intelligence Committee where Diane Feinstein has released a transcript from an interview uh, with the Senate Intelligence Committee, which was completely outrageous. I mean, you think about how Feinstein is facilitating the presentation of a one-sided, non-vetted version of the story from a guy who's culpable for responsibility for getting this completely fraudulent uh, Russian dossier, so-called, into the hands of the uh, uh, American intelligence agency, Diane Feinstein. Is, is promoting that. This is a disgrace. Anyone who ever thought she was a responsible person, I used to hold that belief, has to be disillusioned completely. Diane Feinstein is a phony, a hypocrite, a Zionist, a tool of Israel. It's a disgrace. And in fact, it's very, very peculiar that we have Zionists seemingly on both sides because there are those who want to extol uh, Trump for what he's doing to benefit Israel, such as the de- declaration that, uh, the mo- that J- Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, with those who are seeking to undermine him at the same time. Ten takeaways from Fusion's, uh, Glenn Simpson's Fusion GPS Senate testimony. The most interesting parts turned out not to be true. While the testimony is full of details, far and away the most interesting revelation was Simpson claimed that the FBI had a source within the Trump campaign. Simpson said Christopher Steele, the freelance spy paid for dispatches about Trump, was told by an FBI official they had a confidential informant in the Trump campaign. Turned out to be completely false. It was a low-level guy. but uh, we were told who appears to have most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have finally the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book 
with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. It wasn't, in fact, a source within the Trump who was turning, you know, who was this low-level guy who had supposedly, when he was drinking, given this tip to an Australian diplomat, that the Trump uh, people were, uh, you know, meeting with the Russians to get dirt on Hillary. Now, frankly, you can get dirt on anyone from any source. There's nothing wrong with that. You think that Hillary wasn't seeking to dig up dirt on Donald from every possible source? Roger Stone has made this point most emphatically, that they had the right to have that meeting. There was nothing wrong with that meeting. Nothing improper took place in that meeting. It's just scraping the bottom of the barrel to try to find something wrong. I mean, it's it, it's offensive. It, 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 it's, it's totally uh, uh, propagandistic. It, it has no merit. Then we find the substance of the dossier was not verified by Fusion GTPS. Sometimes the dossier contained publicly known information, such as Carter Page's trip to Moscow or Vladimir Putin's well-known dislike of Hillary Clinton. As for the salacious and substantive claims of collusion between Donald Trump and Russia, they remain salacious and unverified. There's just nothing here. This is a great big nothing burger. Then it turns out the impetus for going for the FBI turned out to be disinformation or misinformation. Another intriguing tidbit from Simpson is Steele contacted the FBI because of his belief that the Russians had a compromising tape of Russia in a hotel room referring to the dossier's allegation that Trump had prostitutes urinate on a bed that President Michelle Obama had slept on at the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow. Amazingly, Simpson reveals this shortly after saying that Steele had a had a professional uh, 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 knowing what is a professional knowing when he's getting disinformation from the source. But there's no evidence Russians have such a tape. Such a tape would have any value against against Trump. In any case, there's no substantial evidence that Steele was the victim of this. He's a source. He is the source of this. It's completely insulting. Now we got Fusion GPS admitting they used John McCain to pass the anti-Trump dossier to the Obama era intelligence agencies who were out to get him. This is uh, John Brennan, for example, and James Clapper, who are both notorious liars and close allies of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Here we get a report from Israel. The founders of the controversial opposition research firm Fusion GPS admitted that they helped the researcher hired to compile the infamous, largely discredited 35-page dossier on President Donald Trump to share the document with Senator John McCain. So John McCain was being used as an instrument against Trump. Hannity, sources tell me, this is rather more significant. Comey or McCain paid for anti-Trump dossier. Uh, Fox News host Sean Hannity claims he has sources indicating the dossier used by officials as spy on Donald Trump was paid for either by former FBI Director James Comey or FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. Either would constitute a legitimate bombshell. This appears to be correct. Hannity believes it was either Comey or McCabe who paid for the dusk and and, and Sarah Carter, who is an investigative journalist digging into this, agrees. Uh, I'm hearing uh, both stories. 
was a DNC campaign funded dossier used to obtain warrants on Trump team from the secret court. Here's even more and why it digs deeper. This is coming from Sarah Carter. The unverified dossier alleging connections between the Trump campaign and the Russians was used as evidence by the FBI to gain approval from a secret court to monitor member of Trump's team. This reporter has learned large portions of the evidence prevented in the salacious 35-page dossier put together by former British spy Christopher Steele has either been proven wrong or remains unsubstantiated. However, the FBI gained approval nevertheless to survey members of Trump's campaign and it's outrageous and clearly should be thoroughly investigated, said a senior law enforcement source with knowledge of the process. Multiple sources told her the dossier was used, along with other evidence, to gain the warrant for the FISA court. Uh, 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 the dossier played a crucial role in obtaining the warrant. Uh, they need to look at the FBI officials who handled it, all completely disgraceful. Here we have a, 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 a report about the FBI hand behind Russiagate from 12 January 2017. In other words, this is nearly a year ago. And when you realize how thorough this is, it's almost impossible to believe that the media have been running for the same, you know, since this was already revealed with this completely fictional story about Russian hacking which has just, you know, sucked all the air out of the television atmosphere. I mean, it's completely ridiculous how much we've heard about it. Special report. And I just want to go over to show you how long we have known that this is all complete nonsense. In the Watergate era, liberals warned about U.S. intelligence agencies manipulating U.S. politics, but now Trump hatred has blinded them to the danger becoming real as ex-CIA analyst Ray McGovern notes. So this is by Ray McGovern, the FBI hand behind Russiagate, 12 January 2017. I emphasize this has been known for over a year. January 12, 2017. Russiagate is becoming FBI gate thanks to the official release of unguarded text messages between loose-lipped FBI counterintelligence official Peter Strozak and his garrulous girlfriend, FBI lawyer Lisa Page. Despite his former job as chief of the FBI's counterintelligence section, Strozak had the naive notion that texting on FBI phones could not be traced. Strozak must have slept through Security 101, or perhaps he was busy texting during that class. Girlfriend Page cannot be happy at being misled by his assurance that using official phones would be a secure way to conduct their affairs meaning both their political op and their sexual relationship. In June and July 2017, Strozik was the top FBI official working on special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into possible links between the Trump campaign and Russia. But was taken off that job when the Justice Department's IG learned of the Strozik page textual exchange and told Mueller. I think that must mean June 2016. There's little, no little irony in the fact that what did he did in the FBI, what did in the FBI sweethearts was their visceral disdain of Mr. Trump, their cheerleading coom kid gloves treatment of Mrs. Clinton and her associates. The 1950s James Clapper-esque attitude toward Russians is almost genetically driven to evil. And their Strozak page elitist conviction that they know far better what is good for the country than regular American citizens including those deplorables Clinton said made up half of Trump supporters. 
But the Strozik page had no idea that their hubris, elitism, and scheming would be revealed in so tangible a way. Worst of all for them, the very thing that Strozik in particular worked so hard to achieve, the sabotaging of Trump and immunization of Mrs. Clinton and her closest advisors is now coming apart at the seams. Now here's a, some summary of what happened here. The FBI's Forrest Gump and what he did for Clinton and Trump, Hillary's server probe. Peter Strozak was a key investigator into Hillary Clinton's handling of classified intelligence when she was Secretary of State. Here's how his role affected the key players. Huma Abedin cleared despite telling untruths. Hillary Clinton's right-hand woman was interviewed by Strozak and questioned about her knowledge of the existence of Clinton's secret server. Strozak wrote a summary of the interview which said, Abedin did not know that Clinton had a private server until about a year and a half ago when it became public knowledge. In fact, Aberdeen had been involved in a series of email exchanges which demonstrated she knew about the server, including one from an IT aide, which said, quote, I had to shut down the server. Someone was trying to hack us. How about Cheryl Mills, declared despite telling untruth? Mills was chief of staff and counselor to Clinton when she was secretary of state. Strozak summarized the interview with her, which he conducted in April 2016, saying, quote, Mills did not learn Clinton was using a private server until after Clinton's tenure. Mills stated she was not even sure she knew what a server was at the time. In fact, a series of emails from the time demonstrated that neither assertion was true. H, here's a quote, HRC, that's Hillary Rodham Clinton, emails coming back, is server okay? Mills emailed to Justin Kerper, the IT8, in February 2010. Despite that email, Strozik accepted she did not know what a server was at the time. In August 2011, she received an email from Stephen Mull, a State Department IT official, which said Clinton had asked for a new BlackBerry, which was malfunctioning, quote, possibly because her personal email server is down. Abedin was also sent the email. So this guy Strozik is a mainstream liar to clear Hillary. Hillary Clinton cleared of her criminally level gross negligence by removing the term from a crucial Comey memo. Then FBI Director James Comey sent a message to three top officials in the Bureau on May 2nd, 2016, summarizing the latest position on the Clinton probe, including the damning sentence, quote, there is evidence to support a conclusion that Secretary Clinton and others used the primary, the private email server in a manner that was grossly negligent with respect to the handling of classified material, end quote. The phrase grossly negligent was critical, as that's the standard which needs to be reached to bring a federal prosecution for mishandling classified intelligence. In other words, Comey was saying that she should be charged. But the language was changed on June 10th, and the phrase grossly negligent replaced by Strozak with extremely careless, below the standard for prosecution. The memo then formed the basis for Comey's July statement on Clint, which said she would not be charged. We all appreciated what happened then. Stunning. On the Russian probe, after Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel to look into allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, Strozik was assigned to his team. He was removed when his anti-Trump text to his mistress came to light. Here's what something, uh, uh, what's known about Michael Flynn oversaw interviews where he lied to FBI. Strozak was the official overseeing FBI interviews of Mike Flynn, the former general who's Trump's first national security advisor. It's unknown exactly how many times Flynn was interviewed by the FBI, 
but he dramatically pleaded guilty last Friday to lying to the feds in an interview in January when he was still in office. Flynn admitted lying about his dealing with Sergei Kislock, then Russia's ambassador to the U.S. He was interviewed at least once more and now faces a sentence of up to five years in prison for his crime. However, it appears likely he'll receive a far lighter sentence as he's a cooperating witness with the Mueller investigation. He's even agreed to give, take part in covert evidence gathering for the FBI. I, this is a, one of many favors that were bestowed upon Hillary Clinton by the FBI. You might as well call it the Hillary Clinton FBI. It's certainly not working on behalf of the American people and has continued to sabotage Donald Trump. Look, I have serious disagreements with the Donald, but our institutions of government should not be corrupted to the extent that they're providing, uh, fabricating evidence, false witness, uh, concealing evidence. Uh, We have to have due process operate properly. That's why I can condemn them both with equal vigor. Trump is making colossal mistakes in foreign policy, but he was elected by the people, and it had nothing to do with Hillary's use of her server or any of the other dozens and dozens of excuses she's given. As I previously explained, it was because Trump was perceived as the less likely of the two to continue the wars in the Middle East. Boston University and the University of Minnesota studied rural counties in the Rust Belt states that made the difference to the election. And they voted for Trump because they'd suffered many casualties and wanted to see the war. Yeah, this is another reason why I'm so profoundly disillusioned with his Middle East policy, which appears to be the very antithesis of what he maintained during the campaign. Here's another amazing coincidence. January 15th, 2018, 10.58 p.m. An Haitian official came to Miami to testify on the charge of, uh, of the Clinton Foundation of embezzling $2 billion in court, settled in a hotel, neatly hung a suit, stroked his shirt, and shot himself. This, this is, uh, you know, uh, another case of Arkansas. We have a huge number of these taking place. The Clinton body count is approaching 200 now, if you check it. Here's some short takes on on health issues that we frequently tend to overlook. January 9th, another study confirms the detrimental effects of water fluoridation on the IQs of children. From Natural News, I happen to think very highly of Mike Adams and Natural News. Another study has added to the growing body of evidence that links the fluoride found in water with lowered intelligence quotients I2 in children. A total of 299 mother-child pairs in Mexico were examined as part of the study. Researchers looked into the link between fluoride levels and the urine of pregnant mothers in the IQ tests of their children. They found higher fluoridation levels uh, were correlated with lower tests compared to those who had lower fluoride levels. I frankly have no doubt about it. It's a neurotoxin. It ought not to be in our water. The Birch Society was right way back when. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a communist plot, but it was a a colossal mistake, and fluoride should never have been allowed to our water. Uh, The chemical sodium fluoride, commonly known as fluoride, has been classified as a neurotoxin along with arsenic, lead, and mercury. However, according to the article that appeared in Waking Times, the chemical is still being added to America's water supply for what some claim protects the health of our teeth and doesn't. I have a friend who was poisoned by a massive dose of fluoride. Had he not been on an unusual vegan diet and taken a giant smoothie 
fresh root smoothie when he got home he'd be dead today he survived but it was sheer pure circumstantial it was intended to kill him health officials admit the flu jab does not work the vaccine in circulation targets the wrong strain as is usually the case they have a strain developed based upon the last flu epidemic this year's flu season is taping up to be a bad one much of the country endured a bitterly cold stretch causing more people to be crowded together inside. The strain that's been most pervasive, H3N2, is nastier than most. And as we're being told, the vaccine this year is particularly ineffective. And that's because it was developed in relation to last year's flu. Get this. Shocking study shows 170 million Americans are drinking radioactive water. The government's hiding it. A damning report from the Environmental Working Group has just revealed that drinking water for more than 170 Americans, million Americans in all 70 states, contains radioactive elements that are shown to cause cancer. Not only does the report expose the deadly levels of radiation, but it also shows that officials have been actively covering it up. EWG's investigation consisted of testing the water supplies of nearly 50,000 public water systems from all 50 states. Researchers found that from 2010 to 2015, more than 22,000 utilities in all 50 states reported radium in the treated water delivered to customers tapped. Only a small percentage of the water supplies exceeded what the Environmental Protection Agency considers safe. However, their standards for legal radiation limits are more than 40 years old. EWG pointed out that according to more recent standards, like those set in California in 2006, Nearly 100% of tested water supplies failed. These findings make Flint, Michigan look like child's play. And now we have another move, also reported by Mike Adams on Natural News, that Democrats are plotting a full-scale medical kidnapping of President Trump, but worried it might look like a coup only because it would be. Someone needs to teach the liberal Democrats that just because they disagree with someone politically, as they do with President Trump, doesn't mean there's something wrong with that person's mental health. As reported by the Gateway Pundit, which is a very good, highly reliable website, may I say. An anti-Trump professor at Yale University, which seems to me to be a a CIA institution. You look at the graduates of Yale who've gone on to the CIA, and it's a stunning proportion. By the name of Dr. Brandy X. Lee says she wants to physically constrain President Trump, evaluate his psychological health, and forcefully remove him from office. Well, who the hell is she for crying out loud? She's practicing medicine under improper conditions. The the guidelines of the American Psychological Association do not allow psychiatrists to offer diagnoses of patients they've never even examined. That's clearly the case here. This is obviously a politically motivated attempted coup. It's very, very uh, shocking and embarrassing to have people like this. Where during an open town meeting at Yale Medical School, uh, this Dr. Lee said, the Goldwater rule is not absolute. We have a duty to warn about a leader who's dangerous to the health and security of our patients. Dr. Lee has even formed a coalition of nearly 800 mental health professionals who are sufficiently alarmed that they feel the need to speak up about the mental health status of the president. In order to advance the narrative that Trump's not mentally stable, the liberals point to a number of different things, most recently a tweet that Trump published regarding the size of his nuclear button. 
North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated the nuclear button is on his desk at all times, Trump tweeted earlier this month. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I, too, have a nuclear button, but it's much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works? But you can tell on its face that this is nonsense. I must say there was an extremely interesting interview with George Lakoff talking about Trump's use of tweets. And he referred to them as being strategic, that they're all intended to shape issues and to reassure his base that he's pursuing the issues that they elected him to pursue. Now, the host of the show, and I cannot recall now if it was on MSNBC or on Fox, I think in this instance, in fact, it was on MSNBC because I was rather surprised to see him present there. The host didn't understand what Lakoff was saying. Now, Lakoff is a bona fide professional. He's written brilliant books. He's a professor, perhaps emeritus now at Berkeley. He knows his stuff. And what Lakoff was explaining was that these tweets Trump is using are actually highly effective if your objective are the objectives that Trump has in mind. Now, this is a, you know, there are three kinds of rationality, which I have uh, distinguished between. There's rationality of beliefs, namely, are your beliefs well-founded in relation to the available relevant evidence? And this is where we conspiracy theorists are playing such an important role because we're applying the falsificationist methodology advocated by the great British philosopher of science, Karl Popper, to test the narratives we get from the government about JFK, 9-11, Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, to determine whether or not they are true. Popper's point was only if you actually attempt to test a theory for for its uh, truth can you gather evidence that supports the theory when you are unsuccessful in your attempts to falsify the theory. In other words, the key to corroborating a theory is unsuccessful attempts to falsify. Now, in my experience, I have been successful in collaboration with many others in falsifying the official narrative of JFK. We've proven there was no lone gunman. There were many different gunmen. There were eight, ten more shots fired. JFK himself was hit at least four times. He was hit in the throat from in front. He was hit in the right temple from in front, the right front, both of which were actually reported on the major news uh, 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 networks the day of the assassination, and much, much more. I'll talk about a few more after the break. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book 
with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com. I think that the ongoing efforts by the government to obfuscate the what happened in Las Vegas, which was a manufactured event. I mean, it was a movie where they had a pre-recorded soundtrack uh, of actual machine gun firing and other military weapons. You could hear bullets strike off the ground. Very high quality was played on the PA system and then coordinated with special visual effects such as light flashing in the middle, in the middle of the, Mandalay Bay Hotel on the fourth floor, not on the 32nd, but in the middle on the fourth floor. And then floors above it, there were three light blasts to simulate American military weapons. We have another video of a guy turning on the crowd and firing, and you can see the light from his blast, but he's using blanks. We have lots and lots of videos that hear lots and lots of sounds of shots, but there's no effects of real shots. Uh, even the one that appeared on the front page of the New York Times of a girl lying down with the blood dripping across her leg, not down her leg, had to have been dripped on her leg afterward. We have uh, the three nearest hospitals had no gunshot recipients. We've been tracking the obituaries. And for persons who died in different states or on different dates or from different causes of death or in some cases merely Photoshop variation on others of the alleged victims. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous beyond belief. But now we get, and we've never known the motive of the shooter. Well, something going on here now, I think, does shed a a ray of light on who this guy was, Stephen Paddock. Here we get a report. Las Vegas shooter's girlfriend said she handled his ammo, helped him load magazines, unsealed doc safe. The girlfriend of the Las Vegas shooter told authorities she would like they would likely find her fingerprints on some of Paddock's bullets because she sometimes assisted him in loading ammunition into magazines. Well, that's very interesting all by itself. In particular, what else I'm going to report here? But get this: the Mandalay Bay staff admitted they visited his his room ten times before the shooting and noticed nothing. Three months after the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history, yet another crucial change to the narrative has occurred as MGM Resorts International is now claiming the hotel staff at Mandalay Bay had at least 10 interactions with suspect Stephen Paddock in the days before the shooting. At least two of those interactions occurred on October 1st, the day that Paddock is alleged to have killed 58 people and injured more than 500 by launching a shooting spree out of the hotel room window on the 32nd floor. And may I say that while there's evidence of these simulated shooting events, you know, from uh, at least three locations I've already described, uh, I have seen no evidence of any shooting actually having been performed from the 32nd floor, apart from the tiny handful of shell casings that were distributed around the the apparent body uh, where they included blank shell casings and CO2 cartridges, which are used for gas-propelled pellet guns, meaning this was an obviously staged scene. But we're getting some very interesting additional development here that the hotel is now admitting they'd actually been in the room 10 times and noticed nothing out of the ordinary. Mandalay Bay Staff, room service, and housekeeping had contact with Paddock or entered his room more than 10 times over the course of his stay, including the three days leading up to October 1st. 
to our numerous interaction with Stephen Paddock every day at the resort, including a room service delivery and a call with housekeeping on October 1st, all of which were normal in nature. Following the shooting, reports claim that Paddock's arsenal consisted of 47 guns, 23 of which were found in his hotel room, along with more than 50 pounds of exploding target and 1,600 rounds of ammunition. Now, that was not, to my knowledge, found in the room, but maybe may have been found at his home. Because here I'm looking at a photograph, and we have all these weapons. It was an unusual array of different weapons. I noticed that at the time. Uh, but we don't have any shell casings, which is odd because the sheriff claimed that he fired 1,100 rounds from that room. Well, we don't have 1,100 rounds in that room. We have that handful and these oddities. And get this, now Mona Alexis Presley has come up with a crime map. In other words, the, the LAPD and other departments keep, um, keep uh, records of the crime in terms of geographical regions. And the crime map for that square mile that includes the, the target area, the concert area, shows no shooting events whatsoever for the first or the end of the morning of the second. I mean, I've got it. We published it. There are no shooting reports there. Uh, It's all trivial stuff. Robbery, other disturbance, recovered motor vehicle, malicious destruction, stolen motor vehicle, assault and battery, assault and battery, other disturbance. There's nothing here to substantiate that anything was going on because... It was a drill. The whole thing was fabricated as a movie. Now, I've got this one guy who's a pretty smart guy, Hugo R.A.V.N., who a few days ago published the following comment talking about about, uh, uh, Stephen Paddock. He says, it turned the problem on its head. The primary goal was to stage an event where an insane shooter killed hundreds of innocent people. In that uh, phase, Paddock may not have even been thought of. Then somebody mentioned that Paddock was already installed at the hotel in Las Vegas with his showroom and collection of modern weapons, and a concert was planned within shooting range, so why not take advantage of his presence in the somewhat unstable uh, uh, circumstances? The hotel knew about his activities from months or years ago on a need-to-know basis, and when Paddock had American or international customers or when he needed an upgrade or expansion of his weapon exhibit, the hotel management routinely handed over the videos to Paddock's controllers. Once these weapons reached the room, they were samples to show only and were not removed. Blanks. If the customer wanted to buy, he could test the identical model on a discrete shooting facility and his order would ship from somewhere else. Normal procedure. In other words... Paddock was a Las Vegas arms dealer. When the directors wanted to stage a political shooting event, Paddock agreed to be killed and relocated, hence the stage scenario. The scenario of a mad killer with 29 different victim, weapons was already at hand, though a bit overkill, but this scenario matched the images and grotesque official narratives so far. Fortunately, the directors are not perfect. Unfortunately, they don't need to get out uh, the first impression of terror uh, out. But the fact is, the whole thing looks extremely suspicious. You know, here, here, breaking federal documents reveal Stephen Paddock had likely accomplices in seven different cell phones. It was this report that convinced me he was right, uh, that this fellow Hugo Ravin was right. Uh, and now we get a further confirmation from Rachel Blevins, who's published quite a few articles about us, 
media completely ignores new FBI info suggesting Paddock was a Vegas arms dealer. New details have been released from the FBI's investigation into the Las Vegas shooting and the information from suspect Stephen Paddock's email account in the month leading up to the shooting is giving new insight to why he may have been hoarding two dozen guns in his hotel room. I mean, this was just all for show. And let me just say, if you want the latest, if I'm, you know, surviving these sustained attacks on my blog, but the, 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 the intruder has been going after Sandy Hook, not Las Vegas. I have just posted a new blog about Las Vegas based upon Rachel Blevins' latest, but where I've embedded, for example, the crime map uh, from the LAPD that shows there were no reports of any shooting events on the first and the second, the relevant time frame. And also, my recent interview with, uh, with uh, uh, Brian Rue, R-U-H-E, about Las Vegas. Okay, so you can find that embedded there, too. I believe it, it may be on BitChute, so you may have to click to get it, but, it, it, you know, it, 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 or, or it's on YouTube. In any case, it's there, and you should have access to it. Now we get a peculiarity about Sandy Hook. The, the police finally, after five years and prodding by the, the, the uh, uh, largest newspaper in Connecticut, the Hartford Koran, which was observing that it was five years since the event, they still hadn't released their after-action report, claims that dignitaries disrupted the Sandy Hook massacre scene. Uh, just think about how clever this is, okay? There was no massacre scene. There were no children there. There were no bullets fired. You had an empty building that had long since been abandoned. So what are they reporting here? Well, they're trying to give subtle details that make you think, oh, they just mismanaged the crime scene when there was no bona fide crime scene. Hartford, Connecticut. After the 2012 school massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, police officials not involved in the investigation and dignitaries were allowed into the root building and potentially contaminated the crime scene by stepping on bullet casings and glass shards that had yet to be processed as evidence, according to a report state police released Friday on the response to the mass shooting. The long-awaited report concludes state police handled the response effectively, but it recommends improvements to protecting crime scene integrity, dealing with victims, families, and other issues. A 2000 13 report on the response by Newtown police said that the department responded rapidly and followed policy. Well, this is all absurd. There was no surge of EMTs into the building. There was no string of ambulances rushing little bodies off to hospitals where they could be declared dead or alive. Uh, well, Wayne Carver, the medical examiner, explained they did not allow the parents into the building to see the bodies, but identified them using photographs. That was perfectly appropriate because they only existed as photographs. They didn't really exist. All the children were fictions made up of photographs of older children when they were younger. That's how it was done. That's why this Sandy Hook stalker coming into my blog is taking down the images that that demonstrate that to be the case. We got all the usual nonsense about Adam Lanza killing his mother in their new Newtown home before shooting his way into the Sandy Hook Elementary School on December 14, 2012, and killing 21st graders, six educators, and himself. Investigators never found a clear motive, but said Londa suffered mental health problems, was obsessed with mass shooting. Well, it's all nonsense. This is another fictional character. There was no Adam Lanza. I mean, this came from the fertile imagination of someone who's used to writing novels. 
there's a prominent novelist who happens to live in Sandy Hook who may or may not have been involved. She is the author of The Hunger Games. She could have been the author of the Sandy Hook script, but it was complete nonsense. When they talk about Adam Lanza's home, you can still download the first edition of Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, which Jeff Bezos very cooperatively banned uh, from Amazon from sale less than a month after it gone on sale on 20 October, sold nearly 500 copies, banned it on 19 November. I put it up for free as a PDF. Now, in Chapter 7, you have 50 photographs showing them furnishing an empty house to be the Adam Lanza bedroom. They can't change those photographs. They're out there now. It's obvious this was an empty house. There are many, many signs it was so. Also that it was contrived because you have Adam Lanza's bedroom made up neat but also made up messy as though they were going to decide which. But obviously when you arrive forensically, you want it the way it was and it was either neat or it was messy. You didn't have a choice. It was what it was. But they were going to decide which. I frankly believe these photographs got out inadvertently because they appear to have been taken by the Connecticut State Police itself. Uh, and then we have the Nancy Lanza bedroom where there's some red stuff on the bed, but it doesn't appear to be blood. I think it might be raspberry jam. There are forms on the wooden chest, the cedar chest, which we find in many of the other photographs. They are keeping records of how they arrange the room. Kelly Watt, who has her home own uh, home cleaning and, 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 and office cleaning company, spotted with her keen eye a blue moving pad beneath the leg of the bed they'd forgotten in their haste to remove. One of the sure signs this was an empty house is there's nothing on the walls. There are no photographs, paintings, diagrams, maps, whatever on the walls. Look around your residence. See how much is on your walls. Typically, there are lots of things on the walls, but they aren't there. And it's largely bereft of the personal items that would indicate a real person was really living there. And that, that's not the only problem, of course, but it turns out when they talk about those lug slides, when you look at the official report by State's attorney Stephen Sedensky from, the, from uh, Danbury, who wrote the official report, and it took him a long, long time to do it. He reports in a footnote that they couldn't match any of the slugs that were found in the, in the classrooms to the weapon that was alleged to have fired them. They could not match them. He also acknowledges they couldn't match the rifle with which uh, Nancy Lanza, the mother, is alleged to have been shot because there were no fingerprints on the rifle. As I understand it, there actually was one fingerprint of a felon from a different state, and that was simply ignored. In other words, this was a complete failure as a forensic account because it didn't establish a causal nexus tying together the alleged shooter with the weapons he's supposed to have used or the victims he's alleged to have killed. It was all nonsense. It was complete fabricated and fake. I have now a Sandy Hook update, Tracy loses, uh, Wolfgang wins, that you should be able to find at uh, the, the Brian Rue, R-U-H-E again. Sandy Hook update. You may have to put in more of the title than normal. Sandy Hook update, colon, Tracy loses, L-O-S-E-S, comma, Wolfgang wins, period. The deep state strikes back. If you get all that, you should find it there. Uh, YouTube has put a warning saying this violates community standards. Yeah, because YouTube sta community standards don't allow explaining or exposing the truth about these events. I mean, they're, they're a part and parcel of the cover-up. So check it out. 
it's a, a very good, very current, up-to-date. I did my best, and it's very, very recent, just done a couple of days ago. So go to Brian Rue, R-U-H-E. I'm seeking to restore some of my posts that were taken down and restore the images, but it may be a couple of days. In the meanwhile, go to Brian Rue. Now we have, by the way, and I suspect the party who's doing this is one of the Sandy Hook parents to wit, Lenny Posner specifically, where Sandy Hook hoax, a page exposing it, asked, why would the poor grieving father of a Sandy Hook victim own 26 websites dedicated to harassing people? Yes, Lenny Posner has 26 websites dedicated to harassing people. I'm convinced that he is uh, so active here because he's worried that if the hoax is exposed and becomes widely known, he may have to give back the more than $1 million he received from in donations from sympathetic but gullible Americans and might be prosecuted for fraud and theft by deception because this is what's going on here. And, of course, this is a – you can find the images of Noah Posner, his ostensible son, for whom he sent Kelly Watt a, a fake death certificate, a fabrication the bottom half of a real death certificate with the top half of a fake with no file number, the wrong time of estimated time of death at 11 a.m. Because the shooting actually took place between 9.35 and 9.40 on the day of the event, according to the official account. Now, uh, 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 I've also had this set up because Honor, okay, Honor had it taken down, and I'm dealing with so many, you know, interview uh, interviews and these VDs are so important. Lenny Posner had it taken, Sandy Hook update taken down. This video is no longer available due to a copyright claim by the HONR network, which is absurd because this man is as dishonorable as they come. Honor network is Lenny Posner, the fake, fake father of the fictional Sandy Hook victim, Noah Posner. We have submitted this in response. That That is Brian Rue. The person who submitted the claim has done this many times, checks his history. His 26 websites he uses to harass students of Sandy Hook. His son, Noah, is a fiction created by photos of Michael Fabner as a child, which we expose in the video. Photos of Noah have appeared all over the world billions of times. His copyright assertion is completely without merit. By upholding his claim, YouTube becomes an accessory after the fact of fraud and theft by deception by a bona fide con artist. Well, I figured it out that YouTube isn't doing any of this uh, uh, but with personnel. They're doing it with AI, with automated procedures. Look at it this way. A, complete com- a complaint comes in. They automatically respond as though it were legit. They notify the party. You can issue a counter complaint. It's off the air for 10 days while the original complaint decides whether or not to take it into court. So it's a temporizing move. You can lodge a complaint and it'll take the video down for 10 days. That may be a very significant benefit for those who want to suppress the information. Now, I've had this video put up at BitChute, B-I-T-C-H-U-T-E dot com, slash, video, slash. And I'm going to read you the number if you want to write it down, because here you can get access to it. It's at BitChute, and the number, the URL is P-T, capital P-T, lowercase x-w, capital N3, lowercase X-E, capital S-M-C, lowercase N, I repeat it, capital P-T, lowercase X-W, capital N3, lowercase X-E, 
capital S-M-C, lowercase it. Now, maybe on Bitch, you, you can find it by the title, in which case I'm just not sufficiently familiar with Bitch you to guarantee that to be the case. Look for it. I'm going to get it up back one way or another. If you're looking for it sooner rather than later, try those options. Uh, I should mention, in addition, that I'll be uh, out in Portland uh, in, in February that I'll be speaking on February 2nd at the, on the uh, Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, Charlottesville, Las Vegas, and JFK, fake news on five fronts, at Denny's Restaurant in Clackamas, Oregon. Uh, you can find it, I'm sure, on the map. From 7 to 10 p.m., I'll be there. From 7 to 9, I'll be giving the presentation. Then for an hour, I'll be taking questions. Uh, the following day, I'll be participating in a conference on the U.S., the U.S.-Saudi coalition, bringing peace or war, at the Lincoln Performance Hall in Portland State University. That's at 1620 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland, Oregon. Uh, from A conference begins from 2, runs from 2 to 5, uh, uh, Saturday, February 3rd. U.S.-Saudi coalition, you can find that online, too. U.S.-Saudi Coalition at Portland State. You can find an announcement. Other speakers include uh, Scott Bennett, the former Army Intel and PSYOPs officer who has become a big-time whistleblower. Uh, Kevin Barrett, who is uh, a leading critic, a convert to Muslim who's a, Islam, who is a leading critic of the war on terror. Uh, I, myself, and four other speakers, including Senator Richard Black, uh, whom I believe will be joining us by Skype. But it's going to be, uh, I think, quite an interesting presentation if you uh, are keen on learning about developments in the Middle East. Then on the following day, on Sunday, I'll be in Seattle and speaking at University Friends Center, which is located at 4001 Ninth Avenue Northeast in Seattle, uh, repeating the fake news on Five Fronts presentation I gave uh, in Portland Friday night. So JFK, Sandy Hook, Boston bombing, Charlottesville, Las Vegas. Uh, I just mentioned for any who miss that the Iranian prosecutor has pointed the finger at the CIA, Israel, and Saudi Arabia for the unrest in that nation. He seems to have quite a solid case. I myself was interviewed on press TV uh, about the reaction thereto and the United States bringing before the Security Council issues that were purely domestic in Iran, for which the United States appears to have been responsible, where even the French ambassador said that the Iran protests were not a threat to international peace and therefore didn't belong before the Security Council. France's ambassador to the UN said that recent protests in Iran don't threaten international peace and security. They, they, they made many observations about events in the United States, such as the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, after the shooting there, Black Lives Matter, South Central Los Angeles, even Waco, where 84 people were burned to death, shot to death by the FBI, evidently because Hillary was upset that the Waco standoff was taking all the news off of her proposals for health care and put pressure on Vince Foster uh, to put pressure on Webster Hubble uh, to uh, to put pressure on Janet Reno to launch an attack she didn't want to launch, where, you know, part of the backstory here is that Webster Hubble, as uh, 
as uh, uh, Roger Stone has revealed in his book, the Clinton War on Women appears to be the father of Chelsea. I mean, this is really not a state secret. It's well known by those who have looked into the matter. But where the United States appears to be fabricating a war on Iran, just as we fabricated a war against Iraq, uh, we seem to be attempting to fabricate a war on Iran. uh, And I'm very, very troubled by that. Where, uh, what may be my my last story today, there's a shocking neocon plan to invade Iran paid for by Jewish oligarchs. Who else? Another wonderful strategy paper from the friendly folks who brought you Iraq, Libya, and Syria, this time via the Brookings Institute. With the streets of Iran heating up in recent days and the Trump administration's threats hanging over the nation, a look back at the analysis paper by the Saban Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institute gives us a strong sense of what's driving Washington and the deep state's agenda in the former Persian Empire. The paper, entitled Which Path to Persia, looks at the options available to the United States as it deals with Iran and its supposed threat to Middle East stability, peace, and tranquility. The paper looks at two broad uh, types of options, though it names here three, the persuasion approach, the engagement approach, and the military approach. Uh, and I dare say it looks as though uh, the United States is, is, you know, Donald Trump's latest protestations uh, wants war with Iran. This is something devoutly desired by Israel. And I'm sorry to say that this looks as though it's further confirmation that Donald Trump is an Israeli puppet puppet, and that his foreign policy really is not America first, but Israel first. I welcome, uh, you know, any comments or suggestions you have. You can write to me uh, through the chat board, putting your questions all in caps. Uh, Mr. Rowe will forward them to me. I check them out on Thursdays where I'll have a special featured guest, as is now my regular plan. Tuesdays to cover the major newsworthy developments, and then Thursday to feature a special guest and to handle your questions. Meanwhile, thanks to all of you for being here. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That's what we were told. Most Americans never believed Lee Oswald was the lone gunman for excellent reasons. In fact, there were at least six shooters who fired from eight to ten shots or more who are identified here. We have, finally, the solution to the greatest murder mystery in history, laid out for the world to see proof after proof after proof. Photos were faked, the body was changed, x-rays were altered, the home movies were fixed. Fifteen experts contribute to a 529-page book with 1,037 photos and diagrams in black and white and color. Hi, this is Gary King. If you'd like JFK, who, how, and why, and would like to support the new JFK show, then go to PatriotRadioBooks.com. That's PatriotRadioBooks.com.